Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this month's episode number 36 on anticoagulants, transfusions, and bleeding, we have with us Dr. Jeannie Callum, Dr. Katerina Pavensky, and Dr. Walter Himmel. Dr. Callum is the Director of Transfusion Medicine and Tissue Banks at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto and an Associate Professor of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology at the University of Toronto. She serves as the Sponsor Lead for the Ontario Regional Blood Coordinating Network for Central Ontario and is an active researcher in transfusion medicine. Dr. Pavensky is the Head of Transfusion Medicine and a Medical Director of the Blood Conservation and Therapeutic Apheresis Services at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pathobiology and Laboratory Medicine. She's on the board of directors of the Canadian Society for Transfusion Medicine and is also an active researcher in transfusion medicine. Dr. Himmel is an emergency physician at North York General, Scarborough General, and Toronto East General Hospitals. He's a world-renowned speaker in emergency medicine on the topics of stroke, anticoagulants, transfusions, and drug interactions, and the recipient of multiple teaching awards. It seems to me that almost every eMERGE shift I do, I'm confronted with an anticoagulated patient or a bleeding patient and or a patient who requires a blood transfusion who poses a management dilemma. There's the patient with the intracranial bleed on dabigatran. There's the patient with the valve replacement with a high INR and a minor bleed. There's a patient with a history of ITP and a platelet count of 15 who's bleeding. And the list goes on and on and on. It would be easy if there were up-to-date guidelines to help us manage these patients, but this field is changing so rapidly that it's hard to keep up, and there's considerable variation in the approach to these problems among ED docs. With the recent proliferation of new anticoagulants and antiplatelet agents, these issues are complicated even further. But don't fret. With the help of Dr. Walter Himmel, Dr. Katerina Pavensky, and Dr. Jeannie Callum, We'll distill for you the most important practice-changing pearls when it comes to managing the complicated bleeding patient, the appropriate use of transfusions, managing INRs, reversing anticoagulant medications, and much, much more. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Himmel. Good morning. Dr. Pavensky. Good morning. And Dr. Callum. Good morning. All right. In this first part of the episode, we're going to talk about red cell transfusions, Now, when it comes to red cell transfusions, it really depends on the particular patient. So I'm going to throw out a whole bunch of clinical scenarios that our experts will discuss. But before we do that, we're going to talk about the basics of group and screen, cross and match, and O negative and O positive blood. Let's jump right into the first case. The first case is that of a 75-year-old woman who speaks no English and is visiting Toronto from abroad. She presents to your ED with isolated abdominal pain for several hours and no other symptoms. She describes the pain as diffuse and severe. She doesn't have a primary care doctor and has never gone to the hospital when she's fallen ill, so has no known medical history. She's a smoker and drinks alcohol daily. She had a fall from standing the previous day after heavy drinking. On exam, she appears well with a blood pressure of 120 on 80, a heart rate of 100, and a normal temp. She has mild right lower quadrant tenderness with no peritoneal signs and no obvious signs of trauma. Her white count comes back at 20 and her hemoglobin is 72. So the differential diagnosis in this patient is very wide, but I'd like to concentrate on the hemoglobin of 72. Let's start with the basics. Dr. Himmel, in general, when do you need to do a group and screen and when do you need to do a cross match? 
And in particular, would you group and screen and or cross-match this patient? My custom until probably a couple of years ago was to do a group and screen. And in a moment, I'll tell you what I mean by that. And then if I decide to give blood, I then get a cross-match. And after a few experiences in the past year, one about a patient very similar to one you've just described, I've changed my approach. Now, we all know blood types come in AB and ABO and so forth. So the word group means what's the ABO and what's the RH. That's all that it does. And for most patients, that may be adequate. Unfortunately, after ABO, you've got lots and lots and lots of other antigens, and they can be a problem sometimes. But for most people, they're not a problem. And the reason is most patients have never had blood transfusions, and most patients haven't had three or four or five pregnancies. There are exceptions, of course, to that rule. And the vast majority of the population does not have antibodies. So if you do a group and screen, you basically are going to spend an hour of the lab's time. It's automated, of course, but it takes an hour to figure out what's the patient's blood group. Is it A, B, or RH? And then you're going to find out, are there antibodies to unexpected antigens you weren't aware of? That takes an hour. So if I've got a patient who I don't think is going to require blood, but may require blood, if I have a patient who is not in an urgent situation, I'll probably order a group and screen in the belief that they're probably not going to require blood and I've got lots of time to think and reevaluate things. On the other hand, if I have a, a person who I'm concerned may require blood in the next 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, ordering a group and screen and nothing else is risky because I may suddenly change my mind want to give him blood immediately, there it makes sense to get some blood ready. Now, for years, I believed if I crossed and matched one or two units of blood, I was basically doing a potentially harmful thing. I was tying up a couple units of blood, and if I didn't give it to the patient, that blood be, would be wasted. And that's a misconception I had. So if I've got a patient where I think the chance of them getting blood is high, I'm not sure what high means, but certainly if my chance of giving the patient's blood is 5%, I wouldn't do this. But if the risk was 90% they were going to get blood, 80% they were going to get blood, 50% they were going to get blood, I probably would not only order a group and screen, I'd go ahead and do a cross-match and ask for two units of blood. So this patient here, for example, has a hemoglobin of 72. When I would first see a patient like this, I wouldn't know what caused her bleeding, but they were drinking. I think they had a syncopal episode. They may have fallen. I'd be worried about a GI bleed, appendicitis, possibly a AAA, although quite frankly, it wouldn't be the first thing that struck my mind. I'd probably direct examination and look for presence or absence of blood in the stool and the occult blood and so forth. And based on what I'm seeing and the tachycardia, I would think this person has at least a 10% chance of requiring blood, probably a lot more. So based on my current practice pattern, I would order a group and a screen and cross-match two units of packed red cells. Now, of course, I've done that occasionally, only to find out the patient's getting the blood. I didn't want them to get the blood. I just wanted the blood held. So I would basically ask for a group and screen, cross-match two units of blood, and I put in block letters, do not give hold in blood bank. If you want two units of blood now, you've got to be able to get in the phone teletech, I need two units of blood now in the next five or 10 minutes. Then the tech is going to do an immediate spin cross-match manually, and you'll get your blood in 10 minutes. Without that communication understanding between a doctor and emerge and the, and the tech, they may just go ahead and spend an hour just setting up a little automated device, and, and, and you'll be waiting five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, three minutes, 
And then you call the lab to find out, oh, we're just working on the cross match right now. So what I've had to do, and I've had a few cases just like this person where they had a triple A and I wasn't aware of it until a CT scan came back. I have to phone the lab and say, I need the blood now in a matter of minutes. If you can't give me blood in 10 minutes, I need O, o negative blood or O positive blood. Only to find out that they were doing a cross match on the automated system, which was going to take 15 minutes, even in the absence of antibodies. So you're, you've, you and the lab tech who's preparing the blood have to understand exactly what you want. And if they do, then obviously you don't really have to do a cross-match up, up front. They'll do it quickly. The other thing is, it, it's not a huge um, problem. If you, for, say you're at a hospital that uses immediate spin cross-match, you know, this patient starts to crash, they've had a ruptured AAA, you didn't realize it, and all of a sudden you need blood right now, and all you've done is the group and screen. Having had the group and screen done, you're ready to transfuse. You know what the RH blood group of that patient is, so you know to choose O negative or O positive blood. You know that the antibody screen is negative, so you're fine to proceed with uncross-matched blood as long as you use a group O. You're skipping the immediate spin cross-match step, but that last step was just to check for the ABO blood group, but you're electing to go with, go with group O blood. So if you do forget to order cross-matched units, that's okay. You're going to ask for uncross-matched blood. Right, and that's the exact experience I had about two months ago. I did have a patient almost like this person who had fallen. I called a radiologist. I wanted a CT scan. They said, well, can you wait till the morning? I said, well, probably not. I like it now. Then I get a call. This person's abdomen is just full of blood. And they sent the person back to emerge, whose pressure had been about 110 since the moment they got to emerge. And before my very eyes, their pressure dropped to 70, and their heart rate went up to about 120. I said, oh, my goodness, I need blood now. So then I said... I mean, two units of blood. We waited 15 minutes to find out that the lab was doing a full cross match on a person with no antibodies. So then I got on the phone and I says, listen, I need the blood right now. This person's being transferred out in about two minutes. I want two units of blood running at this very moment so they get downtown in time. Well, then the person said, well, I've got to finish my cross match. I said, well, just give me whatever you have. You know, give me group-specific blood. And I said, well, let me just finish. I said, no, I'm just giving you group. I said, if you can't group specific blood, give me O negative or O positive blood, that'll be fine. So I think everything you said is totally true. But uh, the communication issue with the lab is super important. I find that a lot of emergency physicians have fear of transfusing uncross-matched blood, and that's completely unfounded. There is a great study, uh, I believe from Boston from a couple of years ago, suggesting that transfusing uncross-matched blood, so without having your group or your antibody screen results, the risk of hemolysis with that is less than 1%. So it's actually quite safe to do this. Of interest, there was also a study done in eMERGE Physicians, and they asked them, what do you think the risk is if you were to just give group O-nego, o, o, o pause? And the response was, well, it's high. It's at least 10%. So there is a disconnect between what we as blood bankers feel very comfortable with and what the practicing physicians feel like. I think there's one other key thing that uh, emergency physicians need to know is they have to use the right terminology. So when they're speaking with the technologist on the phone and they say, you need to be able to say, if you don't have cross-matched blood for me, I need uncross-matched blood and I need it now. And just to use the, the right terminology so the technologist gets the clear message, we're going down the uncross-matched blood route. Let's review here when you need a group and antibody screen, when you need a cross and match, and when you need to give O-neg or O-positive blood. First, do a group and antibody screen in all patients who may need blood. 
ABO group and the RH group takes about 10 minutes and the antibody screen takes about 45 minutes, which looks for antibodies formed from previous transfusions or pregnancies. In most people, this will be negative. Second, even if you think there's a 1 in 10 chance or more of giving blood, do a full cross match and ask to put it on hold. Do this when you first see the patient rather than waiting until it's too late and then you're caught having to give O negative or O positive blood. If you are caught without having a cross match in front of you and you need blood now because the patient is crashing, call your lab and communicate clearly that you need uncrossed match O negative or O positive blood now. Dr. Callum, sometimes there's some confusion about whether to give O positive blood or O negative blood. Can you just review for us uh, when the indications are for O positive, O negative, and I understand you're doing a study now regarding this. Could you let us know about that? Okay, so this is causes common confusion, and I think common overuse of O negative blood. So remember, only about 10 to 15% of the population is RH negative. So RH positive blood is safe for the vast majority of people. And the only significant concern about giving an O positive blood to someone that's O negative is it might affect future pregnancies. So if we have a patient that comes into our emergency department, we've never seen them before, we don't know what their RH blood group is, and they're a trauma patient or somebody that needs blood within the next 45 minutes and we don't have time to get cross-matched blood for them, um, we will automatically give them O positive blood if they are male or a female over the age of 45. If they are women under 45 with the potential that they might want to go on and have a pregnancy until we know their RH blood group, we will give them O negative blood. If we have a patient who historically we know what their RH blood group is and they are RH negative, we will make every effort to keep them RH negative blood to minimize their chance of immunizing to the D antigen, which is about in a trauma patient somewhere around 10 to 20% chance. And we'd like to minimize formation of antibodies that might complicate future transfusions. Any other comments about group and screening, cross and matching? So the only other big beef I have about uh, overuse of groups and screens from the emergency department is there's a misconception that every patient going to the operating room needs a group and screen on file. And really in the operating room for the vast majority of surgical procedures, we never transfuse patients. So patients going to the operating room for a fractured hip with a good hemoglobin, for a, a laparoscopic appendectomy and other laparoscopic procedures, we would never transfuse that patient and they don't need a group and screen just to go to the operating room. Well, I met you at the blood bank We were looking at the bank Wondering if any other color matched any other names we knew on the tape. Now that we've covered how to order up a red cell transfusion, we're going to run through a variety of cases to give you a flavor of when red cells are truly indicated. We already talked about the patient who crashes after coming in and looking relatively stable. Now we're going to discuss the healthy young woman with menorrhagia, the nursing home patient with chronic anemia, the post-op patient, the patient with a stable GI bleed, and the patient with coronary disease in terms of when to pull the trigger for red cell transfusion. All right, let's go on to case number two. Case number two is a 44-year-old otherwise healthy woman who's five days post-breast reduction. She's sent in by her family doctor with a hemoglobin of 72 requesting a transfusion. She has some fatigue, no dizziness, 
and the rest of her review of systems is unremarkable. Her vital signs are all within normal limits. Her hemoglobin drawn in the ED comes back at 70 with normal platelets, normal INR, and a normal PTT. Dr. Pavensky, does this patient require a red blood cell transfusion in the ED? And in general, what factors do you take into account when deciding who needs a transfusion of packed RBCs? So I think this is actually a very easy question because I would not hesitate to say that, no, this patient does not require a transfusion. I think what we get bogged down with are the numbers. And there are some numbers that automatically induce panic. And anything less than hemoglobin of 70 seems to be a panic-inducing number. And I would argue that the hemoglobin number is much less important than a lot of other factors that, as a physician, you should look for. So, for example... You want to know, is the patient bleeding and how briskly are they bleeding? So presumably, this woman has a hemoglobin of 72 related to her recent surgery. So chances of her having ongoing bleed are fairly low. So that's a low-risk situation for me. I also look at the age, although age sometimes is not uh, the answer to all problems because there are some young patients who are very, very ill. So that's where the comorbidities come in. A young 25-year-old with no comorbidities may be able to tolerate uh, hemoglobins of 50 and 60 and go on with their daily activities, whereas a 95-year-old with critical left main may not be able to do so. So age, comorbidities, how well they're tolerating and compensating for this anemia, symptoms, and yes, a hemoglobin, but sort of as a last number you look at. So those are the factors we look at. I know that People like to know, well, what study are we referring to and is there any evidence based for all of these things that I just mentioned? And I would say that, unfortunately, in transfusion, there are only two randomized controlled trials that look at transfusion triggers. And one is the TRIG study, which is now almost passing its 15-year mark and was done in the intensive care unit patients, so not necessarily applicable to this case, so the vast majority of patients we take care of. And then there is a newer study called FOCUS, which is done in hip fracture patients post-surgery. Again, very specific patient population, not necessarily transferable to the folks that we take care of in the emergency department. That's all we've got. And both of these studies suggested that restrictive transfusion, so transfusing at a trigger of 70, is not associated with any harm versus the liberal trigger. However, despite the lack of randomized control studies, there is a ton of guidelines. And it seems that every couple of years, yet another big one comes out. There are good British guidelines that you can refer to. The most recent guidelines came from the AABB, which is American Association of Blood Bankers. They're the most recent, so I would recommend if you're going to read one guideline, that'd be the guideline to read. And they're pretty much in agreement with what Trick Trial suggested years ago, is that A trigger of 70 is reasonable, but by no means should be you using a hemoglobin alone as your final point, decision-making point for whether you should be transfusing or not. So some of the things besides the actual hemoglobin level that you need to consider when you're deciding whether or not to give a patient a red cell transfusion is whether they're bleeding or not, how briskly they're bleeding, what their age is whether they have comorbidities like coronary disease, for example, in terms of tolerating a low hemoglobin. Also, if they have CHF or renal failure in terms of how well they can tolerate the volume of the transfusion. And lastly, the hemoglobin level. 
In terms of the studies that have looked at hemoglobin cutoffs, the TRIC study from Critical Care in 1999 was a prospective randomized study of 838 ICU patients in Canada. One group was transfused for a hemoglobin of less than 70 and maintained at 70 to 90. The other group was transfused at a hemoglobin of less than 100 and maintained at 100 to 120. Death at 30 days and 60 days were similar and slightly favoring the lower hemoglobin, even though that was not statistically significant. On subgroup analysis, the younger and less ill patients actually did better with less transfusions. There was no difference in mortality in those with a diagnosis of cardiac disease. However, cardiac events, mostly pulmonary edema and MI, occurred more frequently in the liberally transfused group. Overall, those getting blood at a hemoglobin of less than 70 did as well, and some subgroups actually did better with a transfusion trigger of 70 than those getting blood to maintain a hemoglobin of more than 100. In terms of other studies relating to the trigger of hemoglobin for transfusion, a little bit later we're going to be talking about the New England Journal study that just came out with stable GI bleeders. Dr. Himmel is now just going to comment on one more consideration when it comes to deciding whether to give a red cell transfusion or not, and that is to decide how symptomatic the patient is from their anemia. We would see many people who come in after breast reduction surgery, and certainly women with menorrhagia who get sent in to emerge all the time with hemoglobins of 59, 62, 63, and at the moment we see them, they're Menorrhage may be under control, and the breast reduction surgery occurred three or three days ago. And the only symptom may be when they climb two or three flights of stairs, they get some pounding in their ears or a little short of breath. And the question becomes, well, is that symptomatic anemia or not? And I would say it's quite reasonable. If somebody is young, under 50, doesn't have cardiovascular disease, and is healthy and hasn't got major ongoing bleeding, and the hemoglobin is even 59 or 60, have a discussion about not giving blood. And generally speaking, I probably wouldn't get blood. We'd probably give a bit too much blood in those situations, not enough iron. I would think these people need iron way more than blood, actually. And probably a consideration of treating the menorrhagia either surgically or medically or with cyclocaprons, many other approaches. And then the question always comes up, well, what is symptomatic? And I would say I have a pretty rigorous definition. Symptomatic to me has got to be symptomatic. If someone says I'm a bit tired and fatigued and if I walk a block I feel a bit tired, that probably isn't really symptomatic to me, an otherwise healthy person. If someone says when I get out of bed I feel like I'm going to pass out and I can't see and I can't hear for a few moments and this happens 10 times an hour, that's symptomatic. <laughs> but I, I would think many young people can tolerate hemoglobins of 60 and 58 and 63, just fine, as long as you deal with the underlying contributing factor and, and, and the iron, start them on iron. And yet these women are transfused on a regular basis in emergency rooms across the country and beyond. And for the fear of turning this podcast into the pet peeves of Jeannie and Katerina, my pet peeve is transfusing young, healthy women with menorrhagia with red cells, because in addition to all the risks that we'll be talking to you about today, 
there is a very significant risk of alloimmunization, which can affect their future pregnancies. And this risk is not frequently disclosed to women. And I usually see them later on in the hematology clinic. And in addition to counseling them about the iron, the cyclocapron, the necessity to actually see a gynecologist who can assist them with the, um, with the bleeding is to also counsel them. And by the way, now you have an antibody against this, against this fairly common antigen. And now you're at risk of hemolytic disease of, of the newborn if you decide to get pregnant down the road. So that's the young, healthy patient with anemia. I think the point that Dr. Pavensky and Dr. Himmel make is quite clear. The next scenario, which we commonly see, is the elderly nursing home patient who's sent in again and again for transfusions, who has chronic anemia or a slowly declining hemoglobin to 70 or 80 or 85 or 90, and it's been decided that the patient does not need a workup or the patient is not a candidate for surgery. Do these patients really need a transfusion? Let's see what Dr. Himmel and Dr. Callum have to say about this. I'll see a patient who's maybe got mild to moderate dementia. They're largely bedridden, they're wheelchair bound. They're in a nursing home. They're not gonna be investigated. Their hemoglobin is 83. So I, I'm in a dilemma because I'm saying, well, are they symptomatic or not? Who, the, who knows? And when do I transfuse them? And I must say, in the last several years, I've been transfusing at lower and lower levels. And I've begun to send people home without transfusions at all, home to the nursing home, unless I really think they need the blood. And I would say, five years ago, I would transfuse a nursing home patient way beyond any other treatment, the hemoglobin under 90. I'm often waiting till it's 80 or 75, unless I've got a really good reason. And I used to transfuse everybody with two units because I was taught if you need a transfusion, you need at least two units. And now I've been taught if you need a transfusion, it's one unit at a time. I agree with you in terms of we want to give the least amount of blood possible to manage that patient, to minimize their adverse reactions, minimize the impact on the blood system in the country, and just keep them in a safe place. The other thing that we have to do is we have to make sure it's not something simple that we can fix with pretty simple means. So we have many patients like this at Sunnybrook, and our emergency physicians are excellent about redirecting them to hematology. We make the easy diagnosis of classic iron deficiency anemia. The MCV is low, the ferritin is low, and we put them on a chronic program of intravenous iron, and they never have to go back to the emergency department for a top-up transfusion because we've intervened. And I would say about 50% of those patients just have classic iron deficiency. For whatever reason, they can't absorb oral iron, and we have to give it intravenously. Very similar to those young menorrhagia patients that come in. They come in with a hemoglobin of 50. Their MCV is 60. They just have gross iron deficiency anemia. They get often topped up four units of blood and sent home when actually they didn't need any blood at all, but they needed some intravenous iron. Actually, Dr. Kelton, that brings up, you know, when, when we are considering giving a patient iron, when would you give IV versus oral? Can you give us some examples of... Yeah, so uh, we recommend uh, giving intravenous iron if the hemoglobin's below 100, in addition to your oral iron. Uh, the intravenous irons that we have now are extremely safe. We can now give uh, 510 milligrams of intravenous iron over 15 minutes in our outpatient hematology uh, transfusion unit with minimal side effects. And to give that same dose orally would take months to get that into that person. And that gets them out of that zone where they could possibly have another heavy period and end up transfused in your emergency, emergency department. You're intervening early. 
if a patient has a hemoglobin under 120, but they're going for an emergency surgical procedure uh, in the next month, we'll give them intravenous iron, even in that 100 to 120 zone. It's a very s small volume. There's no circulatory overload risk that you have with the transfusion. It's much cheaper, works better, gives them a very stable hemoglobin. You don't have the hemoglobin going up and down like a yo-yo because you're providing the bone marrow with exactly what it needs. Huh. Wow, that is practice changing. I mean, I've just never actually heard of anyone doing that in the emergency department, but I can't see why not. In other areas of your hospital, patients are getting uh, intravenous venifer or intravenous ferroheme infusions. Perhaps it just hasn't filtered down into a routine basis at some emergency departments. But I know in our emergency department, we do give intravenous iron, often on the advice of the transfusion medicine physician that says, hey, why don't we give this patient a better therapy that's going to give them a better response. Some studies have shown a 50-point rise in hemoglobin over three weeks with intravenous iron, much better than you could get with wow. two units of blood. That's incredible. Well, physiologically, this makes total sense. I've been working emerge now for 30 six years. I'll be quite frank, even though what, what I just heard is absolutely rational and reasonable, I have never given IV iron in the emergency department. I have never referred an 85-year-old demented patient who needs ambulance transfer to a hospital for blood. I've never heard an hematology person. But I will tell you this, I'm, I'm going to change my practice. But in the places that I work, it's going to change. It's going to require a change in the process. It also is going to require communication with the nursing home and nursing home physicians. But clearly, it's the right thing to do. And I can tell you from the cultures that I work in, that is not being done at all. They're getting one units of blood every month, again and again and again. They're probably going to die from hemochromatosis or hemosiderosis uh, rather than anemia. But I've just become convinced to take my physiological awareness, which is consistent with what you're saying, and translate it into practice. I'm going to have to speak to our Department of Hematology and my colleagues and the nursing homes because we've been giving way too much blood to nursing home patients with chronic anemia. So that's some amazing practical pearls about intravenous iron. If you're sending home, let's say you've got a woman with menorrhagia, if you're sending home a woman uh, on oral iron, what's the easiest, cheapest, most effective, least side effects way of sending, of sending them home on oral iron? So my plan A with iron uh, for most of my patients, if they are iron naive, never had problems with it before, is I tell them to take one ferrosulfate, um, to take it on an empty stomach, to take it at bedtime, so there's lots of acid help with absorption, and to take it with a vitamin C tablet. In clinical trials done in pregnant women, there was no increased risk of side effects with that dosage compared to placebo. In a study in older medical patients on medical floors, randomized it to high-dose oral iron versus low-dose, a single tablet per day. At the one-month mark, there was no difference in their time to response, what the hemoglobin that you got, and there was a dramatic reduction in dropout rate if you just gave a single tablet per day. In patients that I'm, I really want to get a lot more um, iron into them and for whatever reason, I can't give intravenous iron to that patient. I might step it up a bit and give them ferrous fumarate. For every 300 milligram tablet, you'll get 100 milligrams of elemental. You just get a little bit more, but I still stick to a single tablet at bedtime with the vitamin C. Plan B, if they don't 
tolerate that for whatever reason. I have to switch. Um, and then I go to the more expensive pills. And uh, generally, the next one that I try would be Proferin, which is a beef iron. It's a heme iron, but easier to absorb. You have to take it three times a day to get the same dosage as the iron salts. Um, but a lot of patients find it easier to tolerate. So when you get that nursing home patient with chronic anemia or you get the young woman with menorrhagia and a low hemoglobin, consider IV iron rather than red cell transfusion. Talk to your pharmacist about dosing and administration in the ED. After the IV iron, you should send the patient home on oral iron if you can, and your options are the following. Ferrous sulfate, 325 milligrams, one tab with 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C at bedtime, or ferrous fumarate, 325 milligrams, which has slightly more elemental iron than ferrous sulfate, also one tab with 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C at bedtime. And if the patient has had GI side effects in the past with these formulations, you might want to try the more expensive Proferrin TID. Next, we're going to talk about the specifics of how to give a red cell transfusion and the risks of red cell transfusion. Dr. Callum, let's move on to if you do give packed red cells. So we've been talking about not giving packed red cells, but let's say you do give packed red cells for whatever reason. How many units do you give? How fast should you give each unit? Do we need to use furosemide prophylactically between each unit of blood to prevent fluid overload? Uh, What if they have a history of renal failure? How do we actually give the blood in various situations? So I think the first decision that you have to make is, well, how many units of blood is this particular patient going to need before they go home? In the vast majority of time, um, in a non-urgent setting, non-bleeding patient, you want to give the least amount that you possibly can, and wherever you can possibly manage single-unit transfusions. Repeat the hemoglobin, repeat your clinical assessment. Do I need to give more? Where have I gotten to right now? There's no question that there are some patients that come to the emergency department, they were scheduled to go to an outpatient transfusion clinic to get their regular, every two weeks, two units of blood. That clinic was full and they landed in your emergency department. We will give two units in certain situations, but the vast majority of time, it's single unit, repeat your assessment, do we need any more? In terms of uh, using furosemide to reduce the risk of circulatory overload from transfusion, what the transfusion world calls TACO or transfusion-associated circulatory overload, that risk is somewhere between 1% to 5% of medical sick patients uh, in the hospital will develop TACO from red cell transfusion. So it's a significant problem. And I think the vast majority of it is preventable. And we did a recent study just looking at reviewing all the literature on what are risk factors for TACO. And the top big ones were if you're over the age of 70, you had a history of CHF, you have chronic renal failure, or you're in a significant positive fluid balance um, from all the other fluids that you've gotten. We call uh, in Toronto, a term for that is STACO. So you have saline plus transfusion associated circulatory overload. And so those patients that have those risk factors over 70, history of LV dysfunction, chronic renal failure, or a positive fluid balance, I think the vast majority of those patients do require some Lasix. And we recommend giving it at the beginning of the transfusion. The time to onset of furosemide orally is about one to two hours, intravenously 30 uh, minutes to one hour. And so you want it to be working and diuresing your patient while the unit's going in. 
giving Lasix to a patient after the transfusion, often taco starts right at the end of a transfusion, so you don't give your Lasix till after. You're not going to prevent the circulatory overload. You're just going to be now managing it. So giving oral at that time isn't going to help you at all. So patients who are over the age of 70, who have no other risk factors, no CHF, no LV dysfunction, I just give them oral Lasix with the start of their transfusion. If they have significant other risk factors other than just their age, I give them intravenous uh, Lasix at the start of that. The only time I hold it is if they're hypotensive for whatever reason, they got a low blood pressure before. I watch them through it, and if I think it's necessary, midpoint through the transfusion, I'll uh, recommend it. That old practice of giving Lasix between units, that's historical practice because we used to give two units, we don't give two units anymore, so it's totally irrelevant pearl of medicine. So when you're transfusing red cells, transfuse the least amount that you can, one unit at a time. In elderly patients, you may want to consider oral Lasix. And in patients who are at risk for fluid overload, you might want to consider IV Lasix to be given at the beginning of the unit. After they have their unit, you repeat their hemoglobin and reassess them clinically. In terms of how fast to give the units, Give them over a couple of hours. You may even need to give them over four hours, as you'll see in the next case. This was a woman who was 75 years of age. She had diabetes, coronary artery disease. She'd had a stent for an MI about a year earlier. She had been transiently on dialysis because after her angiogram, she went into kidney failure. And her subclavian catheter had been removed about a week before I saw her because her creatinine had gone down to 345, and everyone thought that she could go off dialysis. That's the patient. So she arrived at Emerge about 10 days ago. I had an evening shift at that time, putting her chest discomfort. And I decided that the most likely diagnosis was she was having ACS, acute coronary syndrome. Her hemoglobin was 83. So I discussed it with the internist. Uh, her enzymes were elevated, but no more than they had to be previously for her given creatinine. Hemoglobin was 83. And we said, well, I don't especially want to give her aspirin. She's got renal failure. And I, this is not probably an MI. What should we do? And in terms of, well, the treatment here is blood. So ACS, creatinine's 350, just came off dialysis, hemoglobin's about 83. So here's how the discussion went. I said, you know, I said, the Europeans aren't really giving blood even with non-STEMIs, as the hemoglobin's under 80. So you said, well, blood's the best thing. How fast should we give the blood? Do you want me to order a half a unit over four hours or one unit over an hour? She said, nah, don't worry about it. Give her a unit over two hours. I said, you sure you want to give her a unit over two hours? Yeah, don't worry. I'll manage it if there's any problem. And I said, well, why do you want to give it over two hours as opposed to three or four? Well, if you give it too slowly, you're going to get hemolysis and the hemoglobin is going to precipitate out. So here's exactly what I heard. That This was three o'clock in the morning. So I said, all right. <laughs> I'll order it. So I ordered one unit of pack cells. And I'm embarrassed to say it. Against my better judgment, I put that over two hours because I was told over two hours or I've just been, you know, nice, nice cooperative sort of guy. And I went home shortly thereafter. So I, I returned two days later for another shift. And of course, you can imagine what happened. This woman went into florid pulmonary edema, florid pulmonary edema after about a third of a unit. So that raises a lot of questions. What do you do with ACS? Do you transfuse a hemoglobin 83? And I'd probably say probably not. And if you're gonna transfuse somebody 
with ACS and his kidney failure, which is your classical setup for tackle, how much blood do you give? Can you give a half a unit if you're going to give any? And can you give it over four hours? My preference would have been to give nothing, quite frankly, in terms of blood. If I had to give blood, I seriously considered giving a half a unit over four hours. Because I could see what happened when I gave a unit. She ended up virtually almost dead. So there's no problem with giving a red cell over four hours, and I try and promote that as a regular strategy. There's no hemolysis. There's no problem with that unit, and that's the standards allow you to transfuse up to four hours. If that patient's not going home, what's the rush? Slow everything down, make it the safest possible transfusion. Absolutely, that patient would require probably very large doses of Lasix to get that unit into her even over four hours. So you're talking, you know, 80 of IV Lasix or some whopping dose. Some of those patients actually need the dialysis catheter put back in if you intend to transfuse them because it's medically necessary. And you have to, you have to transfuse them on dialysis. So that's not uncommon that we reserve transfusion for dialysis patients. So they only get them when they're on dialysis. Have you ever ordered, because I've read about this, half a unit over four hours? So transfusing, we have done that for extreme patients with a very bad circulatory overload. Often they've had already an episode of TACO, and we're trying to prevent a second episode. It requires special equipment at that individual blood bank that's probably only available in academic centers. It's called a sterile docker. So the one thing I've learned is when someone's creatinine's up and they get kidney failure, you've got to be really careful about blood. And I've learned if you're going to give it, if you're going to give it, it's one unit at a time. And if you're going to give the one unit, it's four hours. Dr. Himmel, we've touched a little bit upon some of the risks with a transfusion. From a practical perspective, in the emergency room, you're about to give someone a packed red cell transfusion. How do you counsel your patients on the risks associated with the transfusion? Well, I used to discuss in the good old days hepatitis B and C and HIV and all that kind of stuff. And of course, those risks are really low. I mean, you're talking of risks of hepatitis B, probably about one in a million. I've heard a whole variety of figures between one in 500,000, one in a million, but it's low. Hepatitis C, HIV, we're looking at one in millions. So basically, in terms of chronic viruses of that sort, even West Nile virus is probably one in a million or less, the risk is close to zero. So I tell people right off the bat, you know, 20 or 30 years ago or 15 years ago, we worried about all these different viruses. Your risk is really low. Let's face it. Your chance of getting murdered in Canada is about 1 in 60,000. Your chance of getting murdered by somebody who loves you is about 1 in 120,000. And your chance of getting hit by electrical lightning and murdered and killed by the skies is 1 in 6 million. That's about the same as getting HIV from a blood transfusion. So I de-emphasize the viruses right off the bat. Then I tell them the following. I said, you know, you may get a low-grade fever. You may get some hives. And you have to mention that because that's fairly often. I said, and that's manageable. The real risks of blood transfusion are getting short of breath and getting TACO, tackle, transfusion-associated cardiovascular overload, which I've seen several times in the last year. So I say, you could get overloaded. You may need some water pills for that or some intravenous medication. We can deal with that. You could get an allergic reaction we can deal with that. And that's what I discussed mainly. I also tell them there's a small risk of bacterial infection or sepsis. And we're talking here one in probably 250,000 or less if it's red blood cells. 
So I, I mention it and I dismiss it. But I do tell them, occasionally there's a fever, occasionally there's hives and rashes of that sort, and occasionally there's significant shortness of breath, and we can deal with that. The only other two things that I routinely mention is the risk of transfusion-related acute lung injury that we're going to talk about in a second, and the acute hemolytic transfusion reaction risk, whether it's from ABO or some other antigen. And in young women, I also always tell them about the risk of alumination that could complicate future pregnancies. And so there are some specific risks you need to remember for very specific types of patients. So Dr. Pavensky, could you explain to us what TRALI is, how to recognize it, and how we would treat it in the emergency department? Sure. So TRALI stands for Transfusion-Related Acute Lung Injury. usually happens within six hours of transfusion. And what the patient would complain of is shortness of breath, and they would be invariably hypoxemic, so their oxygen saturation level would drop. If you do a chest X-ray, and we certainly recommend that any um, shortness of breath following transfusion should trigger an order for chest X-ray. In the cases of trolley, you will see bilateral infiltrates. And so once you have a combination of shortness of breath, hypoxemia, bilateral infiltrates within six hours of transfusion, that in the absence of any other competing uh, diagnosis, such as, for example, volume overload, you would be worried about trolley. Now, differentiating TACO and trolley may be very, very difficult, and there are long review papers written on that, and for a while we were looking at some biomarkers like BNP and pro-anti-BNP and et cetera, et cetera. Suffice it to say, None of these biomarkers worked out as well as we hoped. So the basic things that can help you at the bedside is if there are, if there is evidence of volume overload, like elevated JVP, and we know it's very difficult to diagnose an elevated JVP in some patients, especially short neck, obese patients, very difficult. But if there is evidence of volume overload, be it elevated JVP, edema, history of congestive heart failure, history of renal failure, positive fluid balance etc., that would perhaps tip you towards the investigation for TACO and perhaps trying diuretics. Diuretics could be, as long as they're not hypotensive, maybe a very, very good telltale sign, because if they respond to diuretics, then you know it probably was volume overload. So this is non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Your lungs are flooded with exudate, with pus, in other words, and inflammatory fluid, and that's why they do not respond to, um, to diuresis. If they do not, and if you notice that their blood pressure drops, that would be more in keeping with trolley. Unfortunately, at that point, it might be too late, and you may need to give them fluids back to try to bring up that pressure. How do you manage trolley? Once you're, if you're suspecting trolley, I would say if, you're, if transfusion is still running, by all means, stop it and disconnect the tubing. You do not want any of that blood infusing in them again. You need to put them on oxygen, and you may also need to transfer them to intensive care unit for mechanical ventilation. The good news about trolley is that with supportive management, most people get better within a couple of days. So trolley stands for transfusion-associated acute lung injury. It usually appears within six hours after the transfusion begins, and it's non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema with bilateral infiltrates on the chest x-ray. If there's evidence of volume overload at the bedside, and especially if they respond to Lasix, it's probably more likely to be TACO than it is to be trolley. If there's no evidence of volume overload, and they don't respond to Lasix, or they dump their pressure with Lasix, then you've got to be thinking more about trolley. If you decide that it probably is trolley, stop the transfusion, disconnect the tubing, give oxygen, and consider intubating the patient.
Next, we're going to be talking about graft versus host disease. So we've talked about taco. We've talked about trolley. Before we leave the topic of risks of blood transfusions, let's talk about graft versus host disease. Dr. Yaffe's EM cases, best case ever a couple of months back, was exactly this. Dr. Callum, what is graft versus host disease and how can we prevent it in the ED? Okay, so the first thing that I think is really important for people to remember is when they're ordering cellular product, whether it's red blood cells or platelets, they have to remember which kind do I order? Do I order regular red cells or do I have to order irradiated red cells? So you have to make that decision every time you order red cells. And the reason it's so important for people to remember is the case fatality rate in adults approaches 100%. So once you've made this mistake, there's no turning back. There's no medical therapy to bring these patients back. So we have to remember to order the irradiated blood. We see transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease in the immunocompromised patient. So those are the ones where you can look at the patient and say, oh, need to order radiated um, blood for these patients. And those patients are the ones that have underlying immunocompromised states. So they've had a bone marrow transplant, they have leukemia, they have lymphoma, they have Hodgkin's disease, they have a congenital immunodeficiency stage, or they're on certain drugs that pre predisposes them to graft-versus-host disease like flutarabine. So you really need to think about this every time you order blood. Right, so you actually need to know this list. So immunocompromised, I mean, in emergency medicine, we talk about immunocompromised as someone with diabetes. Yeah. So, so it's this very is really immunocompromised. A really immunocompromised. Uh, most of these are in the hematology category. Mm -hmm. So you really have to think twice um, every time you manage um, these patients. If you've ever had a lymphoma of any sort, if you've ever had a bone marrow transplant, you would require irradiated blood for life. Every blood bank and every hospital has a list. The following patients require irradiated blood. So if you're not sure, check on your hospital internet, look at the list. Does my patient need it? If you don't know, you call the blood bank and say, hey, can I talk this over with you? Does this person require irradiated blood? Basically, the donor white cells go into your recipient, see the body as completely foreign, attack the bone marrow, resulting in aplasia, attacking the gut, causing massive diarrhea, attacking the skin, causing an erythroderma, um, and attacking the liver and causing an acute hepatitis. And as I said, uh, it's fatal every time that it happens. Irradiating the blood doesn't prevent any other transfusion complication. People think that it stops bacterial contamination, it prevents CMV transmission. There's absolutely nothing else that irradiation does other than preventing transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease. I think before we leave the topic of the special requirements, there are other special requirements. There are special requirements for CMV negative. There are special requirements for washed red blood cells. There may be special requirements for HLA-matched platelet product and so forth. Most patients who need these special requirements are aware of them, and they may actually present either a wallet card or a letter from their physician. It's always important to ask, when you've been, have you been transfused in the past? Have you ever been told that you need um, special requirements for your blood product? And sometimes that sort of sets off bells, and they say, oh, yeah, my doctor handed me this. And it's usually a crunched up piece of paper, and better case, it's a wallet card. Sometimes they may even have a medical alert bracelet that states that they may have a very rare antibody, which cannot be picked up by regular screening. They may need a radiated product. Um, they may need to have washed product and so forth. These patients, you probably want to identify them 
as such earlier than later, because getting blood for them may be a challenge and may definitely take a long time. And I think the thing to remember is sometimes you have a bleeding patient that has a requirement for irradiated blood. Your hospital blood bank doesn't have an on-site irradiator that they can irradiate for you on demand. It's going to be an hour and a half for blood to come in from the blood center to your hospital that is irradiated. It's okay in an emergency to transfuse unirradiated blood to someone who requires irradiated blood to save their life. Kind of in the same situation of uncross-matched blood. The other special requirement that I think is really important to bring up is sickle cell patients require specially uh, matched blood. We don't want to ever, if possible, give a sickle cell patient just regular off-the-shelf B-pause, A-pause, whatever their ABO and RH blood group type is. So every time you see a sickle cell patient, you got to pick up the phone, you've got to call your blood bank and say, hey, I've got a sickle cell patient here, it's possible I m- might need to transfuse them. Have we seen this patient before? Do they have antibodies? What's their, do you have their phenotype on file? Can you bring some blood in for this patient? I remember that famous quote from, a, I think, an old hematology technician, Sunnybrook, who said that giving a transfusion is not like getting married. It occurs far too often with far too little thought, and the consequences <laughs> are often short-lived, long-lived, and occasionally permanent. Think twice <laughs> before you get married, and think three times before you give blood. You may think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me. Think, think, think that you might go let yourself be free. Let's go on to our third case. The third case is that of a 48-year-old man, well-known to your department, with known alcohol abuse and liver cirrhosis, who presents to your ED with a chief complaint of hematemesis. He has no abdominal pain, but does have melina. He's not on any medications. He's vomited six times in the past 24 hours and estimates that there's been about one teaspoon of blood with each emesis. His vitals are normal except for a heart rate of 120. He appears dilapidated but in no apparent distress. He has a fine motor tremor, typical of alcohol withdrawal. His abdomen is soft and non-tender. You order up some octreotide, some IV PPI for his GI bleed, and some lorazepam for his withdrawal. His hemoglobin comes back at 72. His platelets are 90, and his INR is 2.3. So Dr. Pavensky, does this patient with a hemoglobin of 72, platelets are a little bit low, INR is a little bit high, they have a stable GI bleed, does this patient require red cell transfusion? So again, um, I would suggest that you have to look at uh, things other than just the hemoglobin. So it looks like the bleed is... um, is chronic and small volume. This is a young patient with tachycardia, and you get to wonder, is this because they are bleeding and trying to compensate, or is this all withdrawal? The um, acute upper GI bleeding patients are an interesting cohort of their own. And the reason for that is that there have been at least a couple of studies starting back somewhere in the mid-80s and spanning at least the past two decades, showing that patients with acute upper GI bleeding do worse if you transfuse them early. So they're better off to get the endoscopy, their medical management, than getting blood in the ED. We would exclude anyone who has frank shock, but overall... People, even who are actively bleeding, would likely not benefit from red cell transfusions. Or actually, let me rephrase it. 
early transfusion in this particular patient population seemed to be associated with worse outcomes. What kind of worse outcomes? Oh, more bleeding, prolonged hospital stay, mortality, a lot of uh, complications related to transfusion, etc. But those were retrospective studies. And every single time you have a retrospective study, you ask yourself, well, did they select the patients well? Did they account for all the confounders? Exactly what you asked, how many of them had frank shock? I would argue that frank shock related to acute upper GI bleeding is a relatively rare event. Now, when it happens, it tends to carry a poor prognosis. These patients do not do well. But if you look at the actual population as a whole, it's a fairly rare event. And then there was this New England Journal of Medicine randomized control trial by Villeneuve that uh, just came out a couple of months ago. So they compared patients with acute upper GI bleeding who were transfused at a restrictive trigger, so hemoglobin trigger of 70, versus those who were transfused liberally at a higher trigger. And they found that the outcomes were significantly better in those who were transfused with a restrictive trigger all the way to the mortality, rebleeding risk, um, as well as taking into account the complications of transfusion, like volume overload, acute coronary syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, it was very satisfying to see that come in the randomized, as an evidence from randomized controlled trial, because for years we've been saying this to our gastroenterologists, but the answer has always been, but this is very poor retrospective study. Well, now we have an RCT. To be fair, that study came under a lot of criticism um, from gastroenterologists um, across the world as well. The argument there being is that the setup in the study was not reflective of true practice. Uh, these patients were scoped very rapidly, and um, in reality, uh, most of our patients end up waiting for days to be scoped. But my argument to them back would be, well, then perhaps we should strive to improve the logistics of getting these people scoped earlier than letting them sit for 72 hours and transfusing them because we know that results in worse outcomes. So I had a remarkable experience where I did exactly this after reading that article. And I had a patient who was about 75. She was on one baby aspirin a day. And of course, for arthritis, she was taking Voltaren. So she'd been having a dark stool for three or four days, and then she caught up a bit, vomited up blood or caught up a bit for a couple of days, couldn't speak English, was hard to get a history. In my emergency department, she came in and looked reasonably stable. Heart rate was 90, pressure was 110. I did a rectal examination. She had melina. I started her on Pantalock and group and screener and so forth. And then I just walked away to my next patient, referred to medicine. And then I got a call, but two hours later, she was having a seizure. I said, seizure? What kind of... Well, she was having a seizure because her blood pressure was about three. And there was a hypotensive seizure, not enough blood supply to your brain. And from my very eyes, she just barfed up about mouthfuls and mouthfuls of blood. And there was million of blood coming out of her rectum. And she had a cardiac arrest on the elevator on the way to the OR. So I think the study was fine. But you've got to be very careful to your practice. If you're in a community with good gastroenterology, good internal medicine, OR available, surgeons available, a good histology lab, someone who can run up and pick the blood quickly, a technician on site, you take a very different approach. And if you're in a small community and you're the only person and technician's at home, you may have to think differently about when you give blood, when you order blood, and so forth. The key message that I took from that study is in the relatively hemodynamically stable patient. We no longer have to follow this 
every GI bleeder needs a hemoglobin of 100 as this buffer in case they re-bleed, and that transfusing that patient aggressively will make them bleed more. And I think that's a really important thing that most clinicians don't know. And the reason that we believe that people start to bleed more when you transfuse them um, is especially in the elderly patient. You transfuse them, their blood pressure will go from 120 over 80. At the end of that unit, they could have a blood pressure of 200 over 120. For some reason, we see quite an amazing hypertensive response to transfusion. And if there's a clot over some erosion in your gut, it will open right back up and start massively bleeding at that kind of a blood pressure. So I think there are some patients that are hemodynamically unstable that though this restrictive transfusion strategy may not apply to, but in that hemodynamically stable patients, I think it's a very good message. Back off a bit on your transfusion practice in those patients. So suffice to say that you've got to take the patient factors, their comorbidities, the level of the hemoglobin, how much they've been bleeding, whether they're actively bleeding. Not only that, but you need to take into account the hospital that you work in, how fast they can get an endoscopy. And it wouldn't be unreasonable if you think a patient has the potential to crash in front of you to give them a transfusion, even if their hemoglobin is above 70. The only other comment I was going to make, and it's not related to transfusion per se, but there is a very robust literature in GI bleeds suggesting that having a protocol or a standard approach of treating these patients actually results in significantly better outcomes. So same as for patients who are massively bleeding, massive transfusion protocols seem to save lives, having a standardized protocol, a standardized clinical pathway of who sees them and when, what blood work gets drawn and done in a consistent and standardized manner does result in better outcomes. And I would argue that these standardized pathways are probably even more important in smaller hospitals than the teaching hospitals where you have immediate access to things that you were not planning for, but now they are in front of your eyes and you can very quickly mobilize them. Whereas in smaller places, you need to have a plan for if things like that, unexpected things happen. And I think you need to be watching for those unexpected things. If you elect not to transfuse a patient, you've elected to monitor them extremely closely with repeated vitals, repeated hemoglobins, looking for the rebleed. Uh, whereas before you might say, well, I'm going to give two units. We don't have to monitor quite so closely because I'm treating them prophylactically. So with this case, this patient has a hemoglobin of 72. They're relatively stable. They also have a platelet count of 90 and an INR of 2.3. Dr. Callum, first of all, would you do anything about the platelet count of 90 and the INR of 2.3 in this liver cirrhotic patient? And let's say they had those numbers, but they were on warfarin instead, and you knew they did not have any liver disease. What would you do in those two situations? That question is easy to answer because there are no clinical trials to guide the therapy. So we're left with expert opinion that really has not changed over the last decade. So for platelets, there are no randomized trials in this setting. We believe that a platelet count of 50 is adequate for regular bleeding, you know, a stable GI bleeder. I don't think a platelet count of 50 may be adequate for what I call the extreme bleeds. So the massive variceal bleed, the massive peptic ulcer bleed with hypotensive shock, and I try and target a little bit higher of 100, similar to what we would do with a neurosurgical bleed, a spinal bleed, or a massive exsanguinating trauma. I think you need to be a little bit more aggressive, but as I said, expert opinion only. In terms of the INR, 
So if you look at really a lot of guidelines, it says if the INR is greater than 1.5 and the patient is bleeding, you need to give plasma. And that's really been a classic teaching. And over the last maybe five, six years, people have really started to question that. And a lot of that questioning came from a lot of literature in patients with liver disease looking more in depth at their coagulation. A recent study looked at hundreds of patients with acute liver failure. The median INR was three, and they looked at their ability to generate thrombin. So could they form a clot? And it was completely normal, despite that INR of three. And that's probably because their natural anticoagulants, protein C, protein S, are also lower. So they're almost rebalanced at an INR of three. When they looked at their body's ability to break up a clot, they were actually hypercoagulable. They concluded that patients with acute liver failure with an INR of three were actually hypercoagulable, and we should be concerned about giving plasma to those patients because they're more likely to develop a thrombosis. So because of that literature, we backed off a lot on giving plasma. I think it's reasonable in a massively bleeding patient who's got an INR at least above 1.5 to 1.8 to give plasma to bring it down a little bit to aid in hemostasis, uh, but we really don't know. And all of us as in general in medicine need to back off on use of plasma in liver disease patients, particularly for bedside procedures, thoracentesis, paracentesis, line placements. INRs of three and plus are more than adequate in those patients to do those procedures. It's just in the patients that are massively bleeding, we tend to still give plasma uh, despite no good evidence for that. For patients on warfarin that are having a massive GI bleed with an INR of 2.3, we believe they truly don't do have a coagulopathy, and most of us would recommend reversing that, of course not with plasma, because we would give them prothrombin complex concentrates instead, much safer, lower volume, no taco risk. Which we'll talk about in detail a bit later. The bottom line is that the patient with liver disease is a whole different beast than the patient on warfarin with a, an elevated INR. This patient has a stable GI bleed. They have liver disease. Even if their INR was three or four, you probably wouldn't touch it. Correct. I wouldn't give this patient platelets or plasma unless the bleeding started to become much more brisk. And you sure wouldn't give them octoplex. Absolutely. For warfarin. But I think we'll get to that. If you don't want, you don't have to. If you don't want, you don't have to. If you don't want, you don't have to. Say you better leave my woman alone. Before we leave red cell transfusions, we have one more case. We've touched on this a little bit, but I want to get into a bit more detail about it. Let's say you've got a 70-year-old woman with a history of diabetes who comes in with chest pain and shortness of breath for three hours. Your resident sees her. She gets an ECG, which shows normal sinus rhythm with ST depression in the inferior leads. She's given ASA, nitroglycerin, low molecular weight heparin, and clopidogrel. Her trope comes back positive, and she's diagnosed with a non-STEMI. Your resident tells you that her hemoglobin is 83 and asks you if the patient should be transfused. So Dr. Himmel, would you transfuse this patient with red cells? Why or why not? And how about patients with chronic stable angina or patients with STEMIs? How do you decide which of those patients need red cell transfusions? Well, in regards to this patient, the answer is very simple. No. So coronary disease is a real problem. We know O2 saturation is normally 100% in a very healthy person. 
Venous O2 saturation is about 75% in a healthy person, so we extract about a quarter of our oxygen, which means your blood cells have got lots of extra oxygen lying around. The problem is, if you've got significant coronary artery disease from what I've read, the heart extracts way more than 25% of oxygen from your red cells, but about 50%. So the heart extracts more oxygen than the rest of your body. So if you've got significant coronary artery disease, your capacity to deliver more blood to that bit of myocardium is probably impaired, and your heart already is extracting way more oxygen than the rest of your body tends to. So coronary disease may be a different kettle of fish. Now traditionally, and by Christian going back 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the number 10 seemed to appeal to most people. And if you had coronary artery disease, you had an MI, ST elevation MI, you had to have a hemoglobin of 10, and that just says it felt good and seemed pretty reasonable. And I think there's certainly zero evidence for that one. Now, there have been lots of retrospective studies on coronary artery disease and who gets blood and who doesn't get blood. They've been published in Journal of Medicine, they've been published in JAMA and so forth. The studies, the TRIC trial on the ICU patients looked at cardiac stuff. There's been probably just 15 or 20 famous articles on this. Like, cannot think of any published, well-known prospective studies in heart disease. But uh, here's my current practice. In terms of non-STEMI, I follow the European guidelines, which basically is in a non-STEMI patient, I will not transfuse them, generally speaking, there's always exceptions, if the hemoglobin is above 80. And the reason is that the benefit of transfusion is limited. Non-STEMIs, non-bleeding person, hemoglobin above 80, I will tend not to transfuse. Okay, and in the patient with chronic stable angina or maybe unstable angina and then on the other end of the spectrum the patient with a full STEMI. Okay so once again it depends on the patient. I can think of a perfect example. I saw a fellow about a month ago at uh, North York who came in and he had myelosplastic disorder and coronary artery disease. And this guy gets a transfusion about every three or four weeks and angina rarely. So he came into the hospital, he had missed his transfusion, his hemoglobin was 83, which I thought was pretty good. So I was going to do nothing. And then he began complaining of chest discomfort, and it felt like his angina, he was getting more chest discomfort, and did a cardiogram, and I wasn't quite sure. And he said, look, I need, I need blood. I'm having my angina, I have to have blood. So here's my thinking. Well, this is probably not MI. I'm going to assume this chest discovery is having this angina. By history, it certainly was. And it was going for a couple of hours, so it was probably unstable angina. And he told me in the past, he's responded to blood. So I gave this guy one unit of blood over about three hours or so. And by the time blood was finished, his chest pain had gone and resolved completely. So clearly, if someone's got unstable angina and their hemoglobin is under 80, then I'm prepared to call it symptomatic angina and give them blood. Over 80, my starting point is do not give these patients blood for non-STEMIs and who have angina. But there's exceptions to that rule, based strictly on symptoms and their history and so forth. I would concur with your recommendations. I think most of these patients should be transfused if their hemoglobin is below 80. We have good data from the FOCUS study, a randomized trial, and patients with a history of either coronary artery disease or multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease. They did just as well as at 80 compared to 100, so I don't think you need to go any higher. We don't have any safety data to say that you can go to 70 or 65 or some lower number, but very few of those patients go much lower. 
In patients that are in this 80 to 90 range, I think it's reasonable to transfuse them if they have clear hemodynamic instability. They have tachycardia, they're having ECG changes, they're having, you know, complaining of angina, hypotension, clearly appropriate to transfuse that patient. There are two small pilot randomized trials in this population. They were done to see whether or not it was feasible to do a larger multicenter trial in preparation. And they've both been published in the last year and a half. One of them was 50 patients, the other one 110 patients, so they can't really tell us a lot. But what they do tell you is there wasn't a huge difference between a restrictive strategy and a liberal strategy. So I think while we wait for those trials to be completed, it's reasonable to take that middle ground, transfuse everybody that's below 80, people between 80 and 90, look at the patient and decide what to do above 90, I agree. It's really uh, no evidence for that. The other thing that that's, those studies told us is CHF was a big problem. So one in three patients having an MI that are getting transfused in that liberal strategy of get them over 100 had newer worsening CHF. So these are the patients where you really need to think about that Lasix given right at the start of the transfusion to try and minimize the transfusion complications. I think we all pretty well agree. A non-STEMI under 80, given blood, is reasonable. Uh, a STEMI under 90, and if you're going to be late to get angioplasty, you might get them up to 90 or a bit above. But once you're at 90, the benefit of getting blood is questionable, and the potential risk of causing heart failure is substantial. And certainly, I think in the trick trial, patients had way more heart failure if they gave them blood. Correct. Way more cardiorespiratory morbidity. So we've talked a lot about red cell transfusions. We're going to move on to a totally different subject now, and that is managing INRs. In the studies looking at warfarin versus the new anticoagulants, we know that patients on warfarin are in the therapeutic range only about 50 to 60% of the time. This is partly because there's many drug interactions and dietary interactions that make warfarin subtherapeutic or supertherapeutic. Another reason for this poor control is that very few docs out there are up to date on the guidelines for managing INRs. So we're going to review those guidelines now. I'd like to present a few different scenarios. Dr. Callum, before we get into the scenarios with the dose adjustments and reversal agents, what are some of the key things that you need to consider when it comes to the patient on warfarin who has a supratherapeutic INR without a bleed or with a minor bleed? in terms of the causes of the change in the INR and the risk of bleeding versus the risk of thromboembolic events? Okay, so the first thing when I approach a patient like this is I want to know, well, why did the INR go up? Because if we don't identify whatever that trigger was, it's going to keep recurring. So I want to know, did they change their diet? Did they change their dose? Have they not been eating because they've been feeling unwell? And so they've reduced their vitamin K intake. Um, have they started some new herbal therapies, herbal teas, or any new drugs that might have triggered this? You need to figure out why. Okay. What, what are some of the common dietary things and medications that will change your INR? Yeah. So antibiotics would be a common trigger. I would say that's probably the number one trigger. And the second trigger is a person who's gone from a very stable diet to not feeling well. An elderly person all of a sudden moves on to a tea and toast type diet and all of a sudden needs a dramatic reduction in their warfarin dosage. 
The second thing that um, I want to look at is, okay, are they bleeding? So I want to do a very detailed bleeding history. Do I need to worry about this patient? Do they need more emergent reduction in their, to get them back into the therapeutic range? And then I want to know, well, what's their risk of bleeding um, because of an injury? Is this person elderly? Have they had recurrent falls? Then I'm more nervous about one patient having an INR of seven or eight compared to another patient. And then I want to look at, well, what's the risk if I give them too much of a reversal that they're going to have a stroke? And the patients I'm most worried about reducing their INR below two are the patients with a uh, mechanical valve, particularly a mechanical mitral valve. They've had a previous stroke because of a subtherapeutic INR, or they've had a recent venous or arterial thromboembolic complication. Those are the patients I'm nervous about going below two, and I'm going to be less aggressive at reducing that INR. And next, I try and leave as much of this up to the most responsible physician that's been managing their INR, whether it's their family physician or their Coumadin clinic that they go to, um, because they know that patient very well. They know what happens if they make a dose adjustment. They know what happens if they hold a dose. Um, so I try and make the minimal impact. So those are some of the factors that you take into consideration before you even start doing the dosage adjustments. Dr. Himmel, this patient who's on warfarin for chronic stable AFib gets sent in by their family doctor for routine testing and their INR is 7, let's say. They're not bleeding and they're asymptomatic. Could you just run through for us some numbers, how to adjust the INR for the non-bleeding patient depending on the INR, depending on the patient and the, the reason for their being on the Coumadin in the first place? I think an INR is under 5, giving zero vitamin K is completely agreed upon. There'd be zero conflict about that, and almost no way you give vitamin K. Of course, you've got to mod- modify the dose of warfarin or consider doing it depending on the reasons. We can talk about that later. Now, how about INRs between 5 and 9? Some labs only go up to 9, then say above 9. That's my experience. So between 5 and 9... Are there any studies that have looked at what you do? And, and there's a couple, actually. There's a guy in Hamilton called Mark Crowther. He has published studies on warfarin for decades. So there's been a few studies that have been looking at giving one milligram of vitamin K to people with INRs between five and nine. Of course, your question is, what do you want the INR to be? Do you want the INR to go back to a therapeutic range of two to three, or do you want the INR to go back to one? So I'm assuming we want the INR to go back to a therapeutic range. So if the INR is between 5 and 9, rule number one is don't give them so much vitamin K that the INR is going to be completely corrected. You are going to cause harm. So these patients are never going to get 5, and they're never going to get 10 milligrams of vitamin K if they're not bleeding and if the INR is between 5 and 10. So 5 and 10 milligrams of vitamin K, forget it. That's the dose for bleeding patients. And then a few studies showed the following. If someone's INR is five to nine, and you give them one milligram of vitamin K, well over half will be therapeutic the next day. So you could argue, I want this guy to be therapeutic the next day. I'm going to give them one milligram of vitamin K, and I'll check their INR the next day or the day after that. So certainly that's reasonable in patients who you want to be back in therapeutic. So if it's an elderly patient, someone who's falling, someone's at risk, it's completely reasonable to get them back to a therapeutic range soon and you can give them one milligram of vitamin K up to nine. I think two is probably fine. Now, is there any real proven benefit to that? Well, there's one study quoted by Mark Crowther in a publication in the Anti-Thrombotic Therapy Manual. You know, CHESS produces this big 900-page document every three years that the whole world reads, and it's a pretty overwhelming document. 
But the studies quoted there said the following. If you give somebody one milligram of vitamin K and their INR is between five and nine, and if you check their INR the next day, it'll tend to be therapeutic, maybe an extra day. Is there any benefit to it? And the very few small studies suggested there is no clinical benefit. So we've got patient-oriented outcomes, and we've got lab-oriented outcomes, surrogates. So there's no question that one milligram of vitamin K will correct the INR a bit faster, but all the evidence suggests there's no real benefit to that. So what do you do between five and nine? The choice is yours. Give nothing or give one milligram of vitamin K, or you can give a milligram when you're worried about the patient, and if you're not, don't give any. But quite frankly, if their hemoglobin, if their INR is eight or nine, I tend to give vitamin K, and I give a small dose, one milligram. The recommendations of the American College of Chest Physicians Anti-Thrombotic Therapy and Prevention of Thrombosis, published in 2012, say that for patients taking warfarin with INRs between 4.5 and 10, so this is basically what we're talking about here between 5 and 9, who are not bleeding, they suggest against the routine use of vitamin K. That's a grade 2B level evidence. For patients taking warfarin with INRs of greater than 10 and with no evidence of bleeding, they do suggest taking oral vitamin K. So for patients with an INR between 4.5 or 5 and 10 who aren't bleeding, you have the option of either giving vitamin K in a small dose of 1 to 2 milligrams or else just holding the warfarin dose. If you are going to elect for not giving vitamin K and you're just adjusting the warfarin dose, can you go through for us how you adjust the warfarin dose depending on what the INR level is? Right. So there is protocol and protocol and protocol about how you adjust the warfarin dose. And there's been a recent article published in Circulation, and it was absolutely amazing. They looked at INR control and the patients who were in the RELY trial. The RELY trial was, was the trial on dabigatran, and the people who were involved in that were probably at about 100 centers around the world. We're talking about top centers in the entire world. And they found that the average patient there had the INR in the therapeutic range less than 65% of the time. And that's poor. And these are by experts. And they look at what the reasons were. And I think the first rule is one of the biggest mistakes you can make with warfarin is to overchange the dose of warfarin. So if you're on 5 milligrams a day and reduce it to 2.5, that's a 50% reduction. That's a massive reduction. If you're on 2 milligrams a day and reduce it to 1.5 a day, that's a 25% reduction. That's a big reduction. So rule number one is don't change the warfarin dose all that much. So the best article I could find on this was published in Circulation about a year ago. It was written by the guys who reviewed the protocol in the RELY trial. And here's what they said, basically. Clearly, if the INR is 5 to 9, hold your warfarin for a couple of days. If the INR is you know, 3 to 5, you can hold the warfarin for one day. That goes that's the uh, argument. How about the warfarin dose? They recommend the following. Change the warfarin dose based on your total weekly dose. That can get a bit complex. Change the warfarin dose somewhere between 10 and 15%. So they recommend the following. If your INR is a bit low, and they said a bit low meant 1.5 to 2, increase your dose of warfarin by about 10%. If your INR is really too low, which means under 1.5, increase your dose of warfarin by 15%. On the other hand, if your INR is up to 5, in plain words, range of 3 to 5, the article recommended decreasing your warfarin dose by about 10%. 
And if your INR was five to nine, decrease your warfarin dose by about 15%. And that's what I've been doing. Now, why is that important? Well, we've all seen patients who INR on Monday was nine and the warfarin was reduced. The next week it was 1.6 and then the warfarin was increased. The next week it was eight and the warfarin was decreased. Next week it was 1.7 and the warfarin, massive swings. And the reason is simple. The warfarin dose was changed too much. You also have to know, when you reduce your warfarin from 10 milligrams to 9 milligrams, that's only a 10% reduction. When you go from 2 milligrams to 1 milligram, that's a 50% reduction. So don't change by more than 15%. Consider using even 10% change. Figure out the weekly dose and check again somewhere between 2 and 4 and 5 days, depending on where you're starting from. Now, the only exception would be if your INR is above 9 and you can't find a good reason and you're quite concerned, you'll probably hold a warfarin for a while. You're probably going to get vitamin K there, of course, and you're going to reduce the warfarin dose by maybe 20%. But there's almost no situation where you're going to reduce your total weekly dose by 50%. That's like way too much, and you're asking for wide swings there, and that happens all the time. And I say in terms of vitamin K, I, I do stick with one milligram, but once your INRs are above nine, I think it's perfectly reasonable to give two milligrams, 2.5. But I would never give somebody who's not bleeding, never, more than 2.5 milligrams of vitamin K. For concern, your INRs are going to drop way too low, and now you're going to have a very different problem that wasn't necessary on your hands. So just to review the INR adjustments that Dr. Himmel just went over, if your INR is less than 1.5, then increase the warfarin dose by 15%. If it's between 1.5 and 2, then increase by only 10%. If the INR is between 3 and 4, then decrease by 10%. If the INR is between 4 and 5, you can hold for a day or decrease by 10%. And if your INR is between 5 and 9, then you hold until the INR is 2 to 3 or decrease by 15%. If their INR is over 9 and they're not bleeding, then you can give 1 milligram or 2 milligrams of vitamin K orally. We'll have these dosage adjustments in the written summary. That's the patient who's not bleeding. What about the patient with a minor bleed? Let's say they're bleeding from their gums or they have some epistaxis that can be easily controlled and their INR is, say, 7. How is that different than the non-bleeding patient? Well, as you said, there, there's bleeding and there's bleeding and there's bleeding. So let's talk about minor bleeding. I would approach minor bleeding, at least from a starting point, as someone who's not bleeding at all in terms of their INR. So if they're minor bleeding and their INR is 9, I'd like them to be therapeutic. So I might give them 1 milligram vitamin K. But if they've got minor bleeding from their gum or minor bleeding from their nose, I do not want to reverse them so their INR is 1. And the reason is the following. You can manage them with local solutions, which I'll discuss in a moment. And we know when you reverse somebody dramatically, they become at significant risk of myocardial infarction or stroke for the next 2 or 3 weeks. You're doing them no favor at all. And furthermore, if you completely reverse them, then you may have trouble getting your INR back up again. So if the bleeding is minor, my starting point is do not reverse them to one. If you want to give vitamin K and bring them two to three, that's perfectly reasonable. And have some strategies and tricks for epistaxis and gum bleeding, which does not require reducing your INR to one. 
And the other situation is often people with dental bleeding. They come in Friday after oral surgery, and of course the dentist is long gone. And my starting point even there is with minor bleeding, come up with a local strategy. If you want to reverse them, your goal should be to the therapeutic range, which means if you're going to give vitamin K, it's one milligram orally. Do not reverse them the way you would with some of the significant bleeding. I'm sure at this point that you're eager to hear what these docs have to say about reversal of warfarin in patients with massive bleeds. Well, we're going to talk about exactly that in part two next month. We'll also update you on the newer anticoagulants like dabigatran, ribaroxaban, and apixaban, how they compare to warfarin, and what to do when faced with a patient who's bleeding on these meds. Not only that, but we'll discuss what to do with massive bleeder who's on antiplatelet agents, as well as how to manage thrombocytopenia in the ED. And finally, we'll talk about the many uses of tranexamic acid, from menorrhagia to head bleeds. Lastly, I'd like to leave you with this month's quote of the month. Knowledge is a treasure, but practice is the key to it. So that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Until next time, take it easy.